Carolina podcast. Diving, diving deep. Diving deep into all things Texas, both on and off the field. Here's Sean Pendergast and Pro Football Hall of Famer, the General, Sean McClain. Welcome, welcome to Utopia. Hey everybody, welcome in. It is the Utopia Football Podcast. It is a mailbag edition, mailbag episode of the uh, of the program. We appreciate you tuning in. We appreciate you downloading uh, Odyssey app, wherever it is you get your podcasts. Uh, hit that subscribe button, and uh, you'll get it sent right to wherever it is you uh, listen to your podcast. My name is Sean Pendergast, one half of Payne and Pendergast on Sports Radio 610. Uh, here in Houston uh, mornings and of course joined as always by the Hall of Famer my good friend and our senior columnist at sportsradio610.com John McClain and uh, John uh, how we doing today my friend always doing great John thank you for asking and uh, it's uh, always good to talk to you and we've got uh, got a lot of Texans we got the mailbag we're going to do here in just a little bit John but let's start with the Astros who um, got got back in the groove a little bit here. I say overall, John, probably a disappointing homestand, four and five. But um, what do you come out of? Do you come out of this homestand feeling good about anything with this team right now, or anything in particular as they head on what is going to be a really crucial, I think, ten game road trip they've got coming up, which includes the Dodgers and the Rangers. If Dusty Baker takes Yonder Diaz out of the lineup, he should be removed as their manager. It's ridiculous. Diaz has been great. He's had, I think, six home runs in 16 games. His time started to increase when Jordan Alvarez got hurt. When Alvarez comes back, he's got to be in the lineup. And Martin Maldonado, his positive effect on the pitching staff. Well, the pitching staff, Romber Valdez has been great. Christian Javier was awful against the Mets. Worst start I've seen him have. They still won the game. But there's some things that need to be done. And the first thing is keeping Diaz in the lineup. The fact he can be a DH and a first baseman. He is so much better right now than Jose Abreu. But we know Dusty's fondness for Jose Abreu. So I don't know what he's going to do. But he's got to have him in the lineup. And the Dodgers, you know, the Dodgers get lucky. You know, they they face Hunter Brown, who got shelled in his last start. And when the big three of Frommer Valdez, Christian Javier, and Hunter Brown isn't pitching well, they're doomed. So the Dodgers are going to get uh, J.P. France, Ronel Blanco, and Brown. Yeah. So the Dodgers ought to win a couple of those games. But, you know, the the, the uh, losing to the Nationals, is the Reds is one thing because they're red hot. But uh, they should have swept the Nationals. Yeah. And uh, – and, and they won two or three from the Mets. So that's a positive sign. But right now, they're not with even in spitting distance of the Rangers based on how well the Rangers are playing. You and I did a For Real or Fugazi on Monday, John, about Fromber Valdez, where I said, it, it, uh, For Real or Fugazi, Fromber will be the only all-star for the Astros this year. And I forget what the answer was. I think you and I may – Yes. You, you think he'll be the only one? Unless, unless uh, uh, Jordan comes back – and he's healthy enough to play. I'm guessing he won't be in it yeah, because he's their best player. But really, if you look around their lineup, who's going to get taken? Altuve didn't play enough. Yeah. If he got taken, it would be because of what he's done in the past. Bregman's got hot lately, but he's been through several slumps. You know, nobody's going to take 
Tucker, his average is up from last year, but his home runs and RBIs are down. Maybe Tucker is an extra outfielder, certainly no catcher. So for a defending World Series champion, it looks bleak for the All-Star game. Yeah, it's not that they're not talented. It's just the talent isn't performing or unavailable. Uh, You know, in the case of Altuve, he's missed so many games that he wouldn't make it. I I think Jordan's going to get selected. Whether he goes or not is a a different story. Um, As far as Framber goes, John, I I made this case today on uh, Payne and Pendergast. I I think Framber, I don't know if he's the best pitcher in baseball. I just know that, I mean, if I need to win one game, I'm taking Framber Valdez over anybody else. You can have the field. You can take anybody from any other team. If I got to win one game, and this goes back to the postseason last year when Framber was so good in the postseason, specifically in the World Series, won a couple games there. And um, and he was just – he was dynamite um, earlier this week in the game against um, against Verlander. That was – Framber Valdez is the best thing. With Jordan out, he's the best thing this team has going today right now. Framber is definitely the best thing they got going. There's a lot of great pitching going on in baseball. I wouldn't take him over some of the others that are just tearing it up, but he's got a 227 ERA. How well Frommer's pitched is not based on his record. His record's seven and five because he hasn't got the hitting or he hasn't gotten the bullpen that he needs, but he's been tremendous. He's moved into that ace role that Verlander had so seamlessly, and it's almost you're shocked if he doesn't pitch well. A couple of starts ago, he had a bunch of walks, which was uncharacteristic, but watching him pitch and all the ground balls he gets and his breaking balls, and he still hit 96 against the Mets. So he is definitely their best pitcher and one of the best pitchers they've ever had. Yeah, I I, I don't know, John. Like, I feel like, yeah, there's better pitchers statistically out there than him, right? Not many. I mean, he's got the second best ERA. I just feel like his experience in big games, like if I needed somebody to win a game for me, and I, it's funny, you bring up that the kind of mini meltdown he had against Toronto a couple of games ago. He's come back since that game, 2-0, 1.8 ERA, 15 strikeouts, one walk. Like there, and, and there's nothing he can't do as a pitcher. If you need him to get it up there 98 miles an hour, he can do that and strike guys out. He's he's a, a witch with the off-speed stuff. He's 3-0 and this year, John, against Shohei Otani and Justin Verlander with a 1.17 ERA, 28 strikeouts, two walks. He's had three starts against those two guys, two against Otani, and then this week against Verlander. He's 3-0 and with a 1.17 against other guys that are in that strata. He's just – he's remarkable to me. That's those, those are incredible stats for him. And if he makes sure he gets the bullpen, Ryan Presley seems to be back on track after his back-to-back meltdowns. And uh, the bullpen, I hate to say this because we've talked about it before when it seems to have bounced back, then some of them stink it up again. But, you know, if he's in there and if Robert pitches seven and then they have like Abreu and Presley, you know, that was money last year out of the pen. It hasn't been as much this year. But uh, he's – I feel bad that he's lost five games because he certainly doesn't deserve it. And – it was. It's interesting because will Jim Crane go against his philosophy of giving long-term deals? Uh, we think he should do it for Kyle Tucker. You know, he's lost Correa. He's lost George Springer. He never had a chance on Garrett Cole. Mm-mm. He didn't. It wasn't a. He lost Verlander because he wouldn't give an extra year and an option. 
And Fromber is going to be one of the highest, hotly pursued pitchers if he's allowed to go on that open market. And these Astro big big guns, when they go on that market, they're gone. I think a time for signing team-friendly deals like Alvarez, Bregman, and Altuve, I think those days are over because they see the money that other players have gotten from other teams, and I would hate to see them without Fromber Valdez and Kyle Tucker. Well, we have to worry about that for another couple of years after this, but I'm concerned about it as well. Javier did sign a deal before the season, so it's you know it, it, it's not hard and fast, but I get your point. Two more things on Fromber is we're paying tribute to, in my opinion, the best pitcher in baseball. We know about the, the quality start streak from last year, 25 consecutive quality starts. John, over last season and this season, he leads baseball in quality starts with 41. Six innings or more, three earned runs or less, 41. The next closest are Shane Bieber and Garrett Cole with 34. So he's seven ahead of the next closest over the season and a half that we've played here, including and add three more from the postseason last year. He started four postseason games, three quality starts, in which he had a 1.44 ERA. And then this one from ESPN Stats and Info, which I know you'll appreciate, John, because you're a Houston historian. Uh, Framber Valdez is the fourth pitcher in Astros franchise history to record 100 strikeouts and 25 earned runs or less through a pitcher's first 15 games of a season, joining 2018 Verlander, 1987 Mike Scott, and 1980 J.R. Richard. He's only the fourth to do that. And the amazing thing about that to me, John, is that he did it. And think of the guys who didn't do that, who had so many up. You know, Roger Clemens didn't do it. Andy Pettit did. Roy Oswalt. Um, Nolan Ryan, you know, all those guys, all the great starters that they've had through the years. And Fromber is is the you know, I mean, the great starters they've had in this in this run. Verlander's the only other one who did it. They've had Garrett Cole and Zach Granke and Charlie Morton and Dallas Keuchel. Um, that's an incredible stat right there for Fromber Valdez. I hope that you are all these stats you've looked up that are tremendous. You're tweeting them so I can retweet them. I'm actually putting an article together for the Houston Press for tomorrow with all of these stats. Well, in great. Then I got to make sure I retweet your article. Thank you. In the press because those are tremendous. They're good stats. All right, John. Um, let's shift gears. We'll get to the mailbag in just a second. You and I talked about JJ Watt on the previous episode of the podcast, just more in in generalities uh, about uh, JJ than, uh, than specifics. But since you and I talked on the podcast last, um, some news has come out about JJ Watt, at least in terms of suitors for JJ Watt. We don't know what JJ is thinking at this point as to what he wants to do in the next chapter of his career. But uh, it sounds like, according to Andrew Marchand of the New York Post, um, three suitors have emerged for uh, JJ Watt, at least reported. CBS, which is the favorite right now, NBC, which we actually knew about a few weeks ago because of that Big Ten package that um, that they want J.J. reportedly to be a part of, and Sunday Night Football, and then the NFL Network as well, which isn't surprising. They've got 24 hours of real estate they need to fill every day with NFL stuff, plenty of space there. Um, but CBS as the favorite, John. What are your thoughts uh, on the odds board here for J.J. Watt's next chapter? He told us on the Zoom he had after he was uh, announced that he was being inducted into the Ring of Honor that announcement would come soon, and he didn't want a full-time job because he wanted to devote his first year of retirement to uh, his wife and son. And so I'm guessing 
you know, if it's if it's if it was say we're the Big Ten networks, he's going to have to do a lot of homework oh, yeah. to keep up with all those schools where he knows the NFL so well. So I would be surprised. I could see him being on a on a pregame show. I'm stunned that Amazon or YouTube has not been after him because they need to be younger. A lot of these uh, networks, like CBS, have a lot of old guys. And maybe they want JJ and CBS to be on a pregame show with guy because he's what thirty. I know his birthday's in March. He'd be thirty three, I think, and uh, so he would qualify as younger. So I'm going to guess he's going to be in a studio, in a studio on game day morning, and uh, uh, for one of the networks. And if it's CBS, that'd be great. Yeah, it sounded like, according to Marshawn, the CBS thing would be just not full-time, a few appearances. The big thing is they have the Super Bowl this year, and I guess he would get to be a part of the Super Bowl broadcast in some way. I mean, they, they throw all the resources at the Super Bowl, so who knows who knows what, what that would look like. Do you, do, you think he's, do you think he's best suited for the studio, John, or do you think he's a, a game analyst, or is he one of those guys that, depending on how much time he wants to put into it, he, he can be good at anything he decides? Yeah, I think just what you said, Sean, he can be good at anything. It's so much easier being a studio analyst because you show up on uh, Friday, Friday night. Like Jimmy Johnson goes – from Florida to uh, L.A. every week during football season. Mm -hmm. And they get there Friday night and or maybe Saturday, and they prepare Saturday, and then they rehearse the show, and then are on Sunday. And so that would – being a game analyst requires too much. you got to go in uh, to, the, to, see, to the teams. you got to talk to both teams' players and coaches. I don't see him wanting to put that in. I could see it being a once-a-week – Appearance now maybe the NFL Network will swoop in there and put him on the show, but I think he's best at just talking about football and analyzing and informing and entertaining on a pregame show. The problem is there's too many people on those pregame shows. Uh, it's ridiculous. The way they do, they're going to have to start getting wide angles. Yeah, you know, I'd want JJ <laughs> to be like one of three or four. He would have been great with Chris Berman and Tom Jackson. Just JJ and Chris Berman talking about football, but uh, I can't wait to see him because he's going to be tremendous, but you don't see two guys anymore. Everybody wants to have a bunch. And it's interesting ESPN that's not in it and ESPN's having so many layoffs and uh, I, I feel bad for everybody losing their jobs, especially ones that have been on for a long time. And if they re did reach out to him, I hope he turned them down just for that reason. Okay. I think as far as like the studio shows go, where I think of, okay, which one would he fit in best on? I think NBC on Sunday night would be, would be really good. Um, just cause they, I, I, that's of all the rosters on the studio shows, that's the one that's been a little shaky to me with, I'm not a huge Dungy guy when it comes to studio shows. No, I'm not either. Rodney Harrison's been okay. Drew Brees was pretty terrible like he wasn't great um that could you know jj jj could be good on there all right john you ready to do some mailbag questions here let's do it all right mailbag time everybody if you want to email the show hou mailbag at gmail.com we uh we it's summertime but we're answering questions and this is kind of a good time of year too because you can go a little off the page with some of your questions although these are some pretty hardcore football questions that people have come up with for this week. And we got a few regulars emailing in. We'll bump them to the front of the line here. Charles Honeycutt, speaking of JJ Watt, I uh, wanted to ask you guys, what is your favorite JJ Watt memory? Everyone says the Bengal playoff game and rightfully so, but me personally, 
It was the EJ Manuel interception return. That was 2014. I was at that. I was at that game, and I had my JJ Watt jersey on. Good job, Charles. Uh, John, do you do you have a non Cincinnati pick six playoff game favorite JJ Watt memory? I I've got so many of them since I saw ever play. Um, I I liked it when he caught when he went in as a tight end, and everybody in the press box would say uh, JJ's going to get the pass. And yet he'd be wide open. He caught a touchdown pass in Cleveland, and we're up there saying JJ Watt's going to get this this pass. The Browns got to know it. Why are they going to use him? Boom! It's like Mike Vrabel. Mike Vrabel was the best ever as being another position player on defense, going in at tight end and catching passes. And JJ did it. And then they stopped because everybody was ready for it. And I have some great memories of Watt off the field, most involved in charities. Yeah. But when he caught the ball because he was so good at it and he took so much pride in it. Yeah. Uh, the one you're talking about in Cleveland, John, that was a difficult catch. That was when he, like, tippy-toed the sidelines and, and went to the ground. Like, that was – I mean, he played tight end at one point in his college career, so it's not. it wasn't totally foreign to him. But, yeah, he was a remarkable athlete. Mine, mine is probably same season as the E.J. Manuel pick six. But that Colts game, it was a Thursday night game, I think. The Texans lost that game on Thursday night. Fitzpatrick was the quarterback. But they were trailing, like, by double digits. And that they got back in that game when J.J. It, it's on the – in the box score, it's just a scoop and score. But if you go back and watch that play, you know, there was a sack. might have been J.J. who got the sack. I don't even remember. But there was a fumble in the pocket by Andrew Luck. J.J. was on the ground and – scooped up the fumble and got up and ran it back for a touchdown. I forgot about that one. You're right. That was a great one. He, I mean, it's, it it sounds weird to say, but a guy, his size literally falling on a fumble, getting up and then being able to get up to top speed to run it all the way back is a pretty incredible feat. So that's mine. That's my non Cincinnati pick six one. Um, All right. Next one, John Cody Burnett tank Dell. Are there any pro comps? that had been great at his size. Rookie Tank Dell, 5'8", listed at 5'8", John. I, I went and I went and found an article about the top receivers under six feet of all time, and I don't think you can take 5'11", guys, and use it as a comp. There, but my, my before you give specific names, my the article that I saw had about 20 names. There weren't any 5'8", and the only 5'9", guys were Wes Welker, T.Y. Hilton, and Steve Smith. Um, so that's not many guys tank Dell's size to even compare him to, let alone, you know, identify one and say, yep, that's the guy. Uh, it's unusual. The Texans list him at 5'10". He's 5'8". He shrunk two inches from U of H. Amazing <laughs> how that happens to almost every player where the colleges make him bigger. He was 165 at the combine, but he has such incredible quickness, explosiveness, acceleration. He's tough. He's smart on his route running. I think at first he'll be a return guy. Trenton Holiday from LSU. That was his name, right? Yes, Trenton. Yeah. He was Trenton Holiday was, I think, shorter than five eight. He was five five. And he was really good at that. But I think uh, if your difference in five eight and five nine, let's look at those three you just said. Mm-hmm. All of them were really, really good. Yeah. And uh Wes Welker, especially because he played in the middle. To me, he's the best slot receiver ever. And uh, so that's who. 
he would mimic the most. He may have to, he'll get on a weight program and he might have to get up around 170, 175, but he's going to be banged around in the middle, but they got to hit him first. Yeah. And uh, when he and, and John Mechie are healthy, we're going to see both of them inside. Mechie can play outside as well. And I, I'm guessing Tank's going to require a little adjustment because he's going to be getting hitting hit by a lot bigger, faster, and more talented players than he faced at U of H. But there was a reason they drafted him. They love his big play capability. He's the non-first-round rookie I'm most excited to see in training camp. That's the one right there uh, is Tank Dell from the U- University of Houston. All right, next one, John, from Joe Q, another frequent emailer, asked this question. Um, is it harder, in your opinion, to find a great coach than finding a great quarterback? It seems clear that it's at least as hard or at worst almost as hard. And if that's the case, why do top QBs make so much more money than the coaches do? John, what's your take on that? Harder to find a great coach or a great quarterback? I think it's harder to find a great coach. And uh, you know, how many do you say are really great? How many are great because they got great quarterbacks? You go look out to history of all the great – would Bill Walsh have been in the Hall of Fame without Joe Montana and without Joe Montana? No. Would Chuck Noll be in without Terry Bradshaw? Tom Landry had had Roger Staubach. Jimmy Johnson had Troy Aikman. You know, the, the it's harder to find a great coach. And the guy that did the greatest job of that is Joe Gibbs. Went to Super Bowls, won them with three different quarterbacks, none in the Hall of Fame, not even mentioned in the Hall of Fame. And he lost one with a different quarterback. So to me, that was people will say I'm crazy. Vince Lombardi had Bart Starr, but he also had a lot of Hall of Famers around him. I don't think Bart Starr being the top 20 greatest quarterbacks in history. But if if I see a coach that's great, is Bill Belichick great without Tom Brady? Uh no. Yeah. And so when I'm not saying he's not the best ever, but um uh, there have been so many great quarterbacks and there are not so many great coaches. Yeah. All right. Uh, next one, John, uh, let's go to, cause we're not going to get to all these. So some of these we're going to just save for, um, for next week. Um, this is from uh, downtown Milton. He calls himself. Uh, you've been out. You John have been out at Texans OTAs and mini camp. Who do you think the captains will be this coming season based on how you've watched them interact with teammates? I like that question. <laughs> Now, that's a great question, and and I'll tell you what it is, but I'll also tell you I have a column on sportsradio610.com that addresses that very question. Okay. And two of them that I that I say don't be surprised if their captains, based on everything I've learned on and off the field, because the captains have to be really important in the meetings, helping players. Shaq Mason, the right guard, who everybody speaks highly of, mm-hmm. and Robert Woods. They're both new players. Those two guys have kind of taken over as when it comes to leadership. And on defense, Jimmy Ward, obviously, he spent the last nine years with the 49ers. He and D'Amico are tight. He gets to play safety, his favorite position. Last year he played in a slot, and he didn't like it, and he said he didn't. But Pro Football Focus had him great as one of the top slot corners in the NFL. Now he's back at safety. So he's a natural. And the other one, when the other one was drafted, I wrote a story about him for the Houston Chronicle. I think it might've been the last thing I wrote for the Chronicle about Jalen Petrie will be a captain in his second season. Now I know the coaches love 
Petrie. I know how much D'Amico loves Petrie. So I'm going to say Petrie and Ward are locks, and Shaq Mason and Robert Woods are locks, and they may take a couple more. Not sure who would be on special teams. It should be John Weeks, who uh, going into his 14th year, he's been there longer than the Astrodome. And those would make five great captains too early for CJ Stroud, of course, but those are my predictions. Okay. So the, the locks for those four guys. Wow. John, that's a bold prediction. All right. So does this mean that Laramie Tunsil is losing the C on his Jersey? Metaphorically see it. Uh, I think probably uh, I'm, it's, it's not a knock against him. And I think not, I thought last year that when Lovey Smith made him a captain, that was more because of Lovey needing help. What he did on the field, not off the field. I mean, he doesn't even show up in off in off season, other than the uh, mandatory two day mini camp. So, and they can have more than four. You can have as many as you want. Sure, and maybe maybe he still will be, but I don't think there's going to be two offensive line captains. And if they do name Laramie, it'll be just because of his stature as being the best player on the team. Yeah. Well, it says a lot about the culture transplant this team is undergoing, John, that the guys, the first three guys you named are all guys that they signed or traded for in the off season. You know what I mean? They're not guys who've been in the building or been around the team, which I'm totally fine with. Speaking of which, John, not being at the off season, two more questions, Tommy and Ido, John, in a previous episode of the Utopia podcast, you were agitated that Sheldon Rankins wasn't at OTAs, and you seem to imply strongly that he could get cut when it comes time to trim the roster to 53. Give me a percentage chance of that happening. It seems like a long shot. Love the pod, guys. It's definitely a long shot. It's only if it's a tie and other people emerge. They got a lot of defensive tackles. And Rankins played well last season. He started 15 games for the Jets. Texans are his third team in four years. To me, it just doesn't make sense. You have a new team, new coaches, and not come except for the minicamp. Coaches cannot, can't admit it, but they're irritated by that. Steven Nelson. Steven Nelson should have been there, and he wasn't there. You know, he's the last year of his contract. Sheldon Rankins, one-year contract. I would do everything I could. And the only way he would get cut is if other defensive tackles emerge. Yeah. I don't think they paid him one year and ten point five million dollars. Yeah. But uh he should have been here and I'll guarantee you they're not happy about it, even though they can't say so. But maybe he'll be like Laramie Tunsil and just step in and play great. I don't think that's going to be the case because he's never been great, mm-hmm. even though he was drafted in the first round. But yeah. uh, it's not anybody else, Roy Lopez, Thomas Booker, Son Ridgeway, none of those guys float your boat for that yeah. position. But if somebody emerged, but no, I don't think he's going to be cut. I think he might. I think he might not start. Yeah. They gave him a seven million dollar signing bonus. I looked it up. So that to me, the tie yeah. probably goes to the dead money. More he's so not than, he's not going anywhere. Yeah, I don't think so either. All right, last one, John. I really like this one. Frank in Jersey Village. John, I heard you talking about the Dat Win documentary coming out soon. Two questions. One, are you in it? Are you in the doc, John? I'm not in the doc. Okay. Uh, I thought maybe you'd be in there like a vignette or something like that. Is maybe I'm I'm assuming that's a Frank thought. Um, I like this question. This is what I like. If you pick, if you could pick one documentary to be made about the Texans, what would the main topic be? The main topic would be if it's about the Texans history, how the franchise came about, stole it from LA, the mm-hmm. NFL wanted to go to Los Angeles. I wrote that bet the house they're going to LA. Bob McNair kept assuring me 
that they were going to get it because he had spies in L.A. because knew what was going on behind the scenes, and he was right. But the NFL gave L.A. an exclusive period, sent Roger Goodell out there to leave, to live and get it all together, and he's hanging out with Tom Cruise and all these famous people, and I thought we'd never get the NFL. If it's about their greatest players, I think it would be about J.J. Watt and Andre Johnson. One, Johnson, who was great from the get-go and had star written all over him, and Watt, who wasn't, who was a pizza delivery guy uh, who had a wreck and ate all the pizzas and got fired and God told him you'll never make it in football. And he didn't excel till he transferred to Wisconsin. So it's contrasting stories. Both of them are great and they're going to be up there together. That wins documentary coming out July 4th on ESPN. And uh, it's going to be on the SEC network is fascinating about his parents leaving Vietnam when the war was going on and, and getting on a boat and trying to sail out where we're like 14 people and his whole family trying to sail out to meet a boat from America that wasn't there or they never found it. Hmm. Two weeks later, they land on the island and they say, is this America? And they said, no, this is Thailand. So there's story about how they went to Thailand, to the West Coast, to Arkansas, to Michigan, and ended up in Rockport, Fulton, because his dad was a fisherman and how dad, uh, played football without his parents knowing it until he broke his arm and had to tell them the truth. Hmm. And, of course, his career has been fantastic. One story told off the air, I'll tell it here. Okay. Because we ran out of time. Jim Myers, longtime assistant coach for the Cowboys, he died, and Dad met his wife. And his wife said, I think Myers had been in the Air Force. And she asked Dad, were you one of the children that my husband flew out of Vietnam in shoeboxes? And he said, no, ma'am, I was out of Vietnam on a boat. And she said that there were Americans and parents putting their children in shoeboxes, babies, to get oh them to America. And, and Jim Myers flew planes that had babies in shoeboxes. I just, I'd never heard that. And I grew up during the Vietnam War. Yeah. And I just, I just was blown away. Anyway, that win story is going to be tremendous produced by the 12th man. And I hope everybody checks it out. That's a great tease, John. That, that when, and that's on July 4th. It's coming out. You said July 4th. Okay. Um, circling back to the original question. First of all, your, your JJ Watt documentary, the, uh, you know, the whole preface about him eating the pizzas when he got into, you know, his car broke down and he ate the pizzas and got fired and the manager of the pizza store, had the scouting acumen to take a look at J.J. Watt and say, you'll never amount to anything. My question was, was Bill O'Brien the one running the pizza store? <laughs> oh, that's funny. Somebody, when J.J. got to be great and was winning his three NFL Defensive Player of the Year awards, I can't remember who it was, somebody tracked down that pizza guy and said, well, what do you think now? And, of course, he said all the right stuff. Yeah, for sure. Uh, my, my, um, my two – and they're probably kind of interconnected. Well, I, let me back up. My big one that I that I would love to see, in part because I think I would be in it, and I think you would as well, because we live through it, would be one about the Deshaun Watson saga. It would be an incredible thirty for thirty. I think it will be a thirty for thirty someday, especially if especially if Watson's time in Cleveland ends on one extreme or the other. You know, winning a Super Bowl or as you know the version of Deshaun we got last year, and then it's one of the biggest failures of all time. 
and, and and I think the Texans are tied into that as well. Like if the Texans wind up winning a Super Bowl someday, the Deshaun story becomes even bigger because of the butterfly effect of all that. But I think you and I would both be in that as people they interview. I know at the very least I would be in there because of the Rusty Harden interview. Because that that would be in the documentary, right? It has to be. Yeah, and what was it that Rusty said that was the best thing? Happy endings are not a crime. It's not a crime. Just because you go somewhere and get a happy ending, that's not a crime. There's a little bit of Lou Holtz in Rusty Harden. That's not a crime. You get the happy ending. It's we had a very happy ending in 1988. Won the national championship. It was unbelievable. It was that, that's my kind of happy ending. Um, you so do a sh- great job on those. I never get tired of hearing your Rusty and your and your Lou. I may need to just do a podcast where I'm the two of them talking to each other the whole time. <laughs> um, so, uh, so D- D- Deshaun Watson, and then I think, like honestly, as depressing it would be for Texan as it would be for Texan fans to watch. But just the whole Jack Easterby thing, like that whole thing from beginning to no, end. Nobody's going to watch a Jack Easterby documentary. I, I, I think I uh, – well, it's one where he ends up getting fired. So, yeah, like that's like saying no one's going to watch Game of Thrones. Everybody hates Joffrey. Yeah, until he chokes to death. Talk about awesome. a happy ending. <laughs> that's unbelievable. It's Joffrey has a purple face. It's incredible. I you did are. do an interview for a documentary that's being filmed right now Yeah, that Houston fans, well, everybody, it's about Bum Phillips and the Love You Blue era. Okay. And uh, I did my interviews like eight months ago, and they have seen the players. They did Wade Phillips last week on his birthday, and it's going to be – it should be great. The oh, best one I've ever been in is, to me, one of the best I've ever seen about facing Nolan. That yeah. one on Nolan Ryan was tremendous. They really did. An, they did an incredible job, and I think the guys doing the one on Bomb. They've interviewed so many former Oiler players, mm-hmm. coaches, media, fans. I can't wait when it comes out. That'll be good, John. You know I watched the OJ Chase with Lou Holtz. I've told you that before. No, right? did you what? I watched the OJ Chase with Lou. Really? Holtz. Yeah. No, it, you didn't tell me that. I never told you that. Yeah, it was. No. Uh, it was. Uh, it was a Friday, as you remember, because the Rockets were playing in Game Five. It was the um, it was the uh, Friday before his daughter was getting me. His daughter is one of my very best friends, Liz. We graduated together, and um, from Notre Dame, and uh, and so it was the it was the Friday before. So there were they had the rehearsal dinner, which I was not invited to because I wasn't in the wedding party. But then after that, they had a party for like the next the next wave of friends. You know, I wasn't in the inner inner circle, but I was in the next circle. So they had a party at a bar on campus at Notre Dame called Senior Bar. They rented it out. And so there's probably like 100 people there that were in town for the wedding. And it was like a, it was a bar, had TVs, had those big screen TVs, John, like back in the 90s that shot like green, blue, and red <laughs> tubes at, at a movie screen. And I was watching Game 5 so intently. I hadn't moved to Houston yet. I, I, I wound up moving to Houston four months after this. I was still living in Connecticut. And I'm standing there and I'm watching this series because I've got like 500 bucks on the Rockets to win this series against the Knicks. So I'm like the only one that's paying any attention to it. Everybody else is just drinking and partying. And I'm standing there, man, and I'm watching intently, like focused. And the screen splits. And all of a sudden on one side is the Rocket game and on the other side is the OJ chase. We all remember what that looked like on TV. It was crazy. And I'm watching it. And all of a sudden I hear this voice next to me. This is unbelievable. This 
this is the biggest ball from Grace I've ever seen. And I look, and Coach Holtz is standing right next to me watching the OJ chase. And you got to remember, John, that OJ was the sideline, one of the sideline reporters for Notre Dame back then because, you know, they're on NBC. And OJ was, you go back and watch the Florida State Notre Dame game, the game of the century from 1993, and you'll see two things in there my brother kicking a 47 yard field goal. And OJ Simpson on the uh, sidelines for the the two things everybody's talking about from that game. But OJ was on the sideline. He was a, he he was in production meetings in our building. Like you know, so yeah, I watched the uh, I watched the OJ chase with the, Lou Holtz. The last game that he wore his Bruno Magley shoes was it's, here against the Oilers. Oh really? I got a story about Dom Capers. Dom Capers, the head coach in Carolina. Yeah. Vic Fangio told me this. So one day, all the coaches were gathered around TVs in Vic Fangio's office watching the chase. And it was late. Players had gone. Dom sticks his head in there and said, what's everybody watching? They're watching OJ. And OJ's in his Bronco without cowlings. And everybody in the country's watching. And he goes, Dom goes, what's going on with OJ? And every coach turned around slow and looked at him. And Dom had this confused look like, what in the world are y'all talking about? Dude. And they didn't say a word. And then he just left and went back down to his office. That's how that, I mean, that's how closed off coaches are, right? Like it's <laughs> biggest story going. Yeah. It was John. It was funny um, on Facebook last, cause the anniversary was last week. It was like Saturday, I think June 17th, I think was Saturday, Saturday or Sunday. Um, and so Liz, Lou's daughter, put up a picture like the wedding party, you know, from that day. Like, hey, who who knew that the day before this? Oh yeah, because it was it was a it was her anniversary. So she posted a picture of the wedding party, and she said, "Man, who knew that the day before this, OJ would get chased down the freeway?" And a friend of hers who lives in Houston commented on it and said, "Yeah, I listened to I listened to a sports talk host here in town who tells that story all the time." about being at your, you know, your rehearsal dinner or whatever, watching the OJ chase. And she, she actually replied to it. She said, David, such a small world. Sean Pendergast is my friend. He's such a great guy. I made a movie of him and some friends and my parents in a college project, a class project in college. He's dying for me to release it. LOL. That's true. We did a, she was a film. Great. She was a film major and she had to do a silent movie as part of a project. And this is like our junior year. And so she she recruited me and two of my buddies to be in the silent movie, which was filmed at her parents' house. And Lou Holtz was my dad in the silent movie. <laughs> oh, that's great stuff. It was it was great. Yeah, Lou, yeah. When we got we started, we were getting ready to start filming, and it was like a Tuesday in the middle of the football season. And so Lou just got home from practice or whatever, and we're getting ready to start filming, and. Um, Lou's like, so so what are we doing here? I'm Sean's dad. Or she's like, she's like, Dad, it's a silent movie. Oh, you're regular, <laughs> you're regular Cecil B. DeMille. <laughs> so I'll tell one more quick funny anecdote about this, John. He's my dad in the movie. And the movie, it's a short, like silent film. It's like five minutes long, right? And the whole plot line is my parents are leaving to go out for the night and I invite my idiot friends over to have a party and we all get caught the end. Right. It's like a stupid little silent movie. So the, begin- the very first scene of the movie is Lou and, and his his wife, St. Beth, he would call her. She was her name was Beth. He called her St. Beth. They were leaving and saying goodbye to me at the front door. 
And so Liz is like coaching her dad up. Okay, like, okay, dad, it's a silent movie. So you're not, nobody's going to hear you. So you have to kind of talk with your body motions. You got to be exaggerated with your body motions. Okay, got it. So, you know, ready, action. I hug Mrs. Holtz and Lou comes up to me. They're leaving for the night. He puts his hand out to shake my hand because every dad shakes their son's hand before they go out. <laughs> he grabs my hand and starts pumping it like a pump handle and he screams, <laughs> shake your son, shake your son. And, and Liz is like, cut, cut. Like, dad, you can shout as loud as you want. Nobody's going to hear you. It's a silent movie. <laughs> Oh, those are great stories. It was funny, man. Yeah. Sounds like it. It was a good time. All right, John, what do you got going on on your various platforms? I've got the column on uh, Sports Radio 610 about uh, uh, 10 things we learned about the Texans at training camp, and I talk about who the captains could be, should be, and then I have a column I did on the Astros that holds up because even though they've won back-to-back games, it it talks about their weaknesses overall, and I'll be writing – more next week. Thank you awesome. very much, Sean. And thanks very much to James, our producer extraordinaire. Absolutely. Big thanks to James for getting this podcast out to you guys each week. Two episodes a week during the summer. Soon enough, it'll be three episodes a week when the season is be here. It'll be here before we know it. And uh, so, yeah, big thanks to James for getting the podcast out. James Jackson, our producer. Um, and, uh, and yes, you can get all of John's stuff at sportsradio610.com. Click that subscribe button wherever it is you get your podcast. The Odyssey app is a great place to go do that. Just search on either of us or search on Hutopia, H-O-U-Topia. Podcast pops right up. Hit that subscribe button. You don't have to worry about it. You don't have to worry about a damn thing. It'll come right to you. Spoon-fed podcast from Sean Pendergast and John McClain. All right. So for the Hall of Famer, John McClain, and our producer, James, uh, I'm Sean Pendergast. We are out of time. We will see you all next week for the next episode of the Utopia Football Podcast. Have a great day, everybody.